So last week in our chronological journey through the Gospels, well, we were we began in Matthew chapter 12, verses 33 through 37, where Jesus there was talking about good fruit versus bad fruits. And it caused me to ask the question, is your heart producing good or bad fruit? That should be a question that we should all desire to answer. The things that I'm doing in this life, is it producing good fruit for eternal gain? Or is it really something that will be burned up um, as chaff that has no eternal value? Well, a question that we have to ask ourselves, what are we producing in this life? We next looked at Matthew 12, verses 38 through 42, where the religious rulers asked Jesus to show us a sign. And we know at this point that Jesus had given them many signs. He'd even raised the dead. And yet they're still begging, show us a sign. It's like, how many signs do you need? So the sign he gave them was the sign of Jonah, which... Jesus applied as Jonah was three days and three nights in the belly of the fish, so will the Son of Man be three days and three nights in the heart of the earth. So what Jesus pointed them to was his crucifixion upon the cross, his death, his burial, his three days and three nights, but also his resurrection from the grave. So the sign Jesus pointed them to was his death, burial, and resurrection. But they would have to wait for that sign to be fulfilled a little over a year before that sign would be fulfilled from that point in the scripture. But they were begging, show us a sign. There were many signs given. There actually were enough signs given for someone who had eyes that were willing to spiritually see that they would believe. This day and age, we have... Signs still being presented to this world. And if people would be honest and they were not blinded by the light of Satan, they would see the true light of Jesus Christ. We next moved on. And there I taught about the danger of demonic possession in Luke 11, verses 24 through 26, where Jesus told what is believed to be a parable of a man who is demonically possessed. The demon left his body seeking some better place, some better host body for the demon. And then he couldn't find any place better. He came back with seven other evil spirits worse than him. When he came back to the man, his original host, he found the place empty and swept clean. And I talked about the importance of filling our lives with Jesus Christ. It was empty. It was swept clean. He had opportunity to fill his life with God and with Christ at that time, but he did not. And then the condition of the man was worse than at the first because his heart was really, at that point, empty. And in this life, I said last week, we can fill our lives with, we're going to fill our lives with something. According to 1 John 1, 16, it'll either be the lust of the flesh, the lust of the eyes, or the pride of life, or we can fill our lives with Jesus Christ from which we find true peace. And finally, last week, we looked at Mark 3, verses 31 through 35, where Jesus's family showed up, mom, his brothers and sisters. They wanted to see Christ. At this point, most of them, the brothers especially, we looked at that from John chapter 7, they did not believe that Jesus was the Messiah. 
And uh, they thought at this point, there was something wrong with this boy and we need to come and rescue him. And when they called for Jesus, Jesus looked around the room where he was at and he said, this is my mother, these are my brothers and my sisters. And we learned that those who do the will of God are truly part of the family of God. Well, that's where we left it last week. Today, we're going to stay in Luke's gospel, chapter 11, verses 33 through 54. I titled this Justice and Love. Those two words come right out of our passage. And in this passage of scripture, we're going to learn about a light and a lamp from verses 33 through 36. And we'll learn the importance of filling our lives with the light of Jesus Christ. And next we'll learn about true cleanliness from Luke 11, verses 37 through 51, where in that portion I will ask, have you allowed Jesus to cleanse your heart? And finally, in verses 46 through 54, Jesus pronounces six woes upon the religious rulers of Israel, and we'll look at all six of these. But in the final woe, or the fifth or sixth, I forget right now which one it is. But Jesus was talking about the religious rulers, how they were actually hindering people from coming to God. And so I asked the question, are we hindering others from coming to Jesus? And that's a good question. So today, our passage titled Justice and Love from Luke 11, verses 33 through 54, we're going to see a lamp and a light in verses 33 through 36, true cleanliness. Ah, cleanness is what I wrote in my notes, but that's not what I meant. I think I got it correct in yours, though. How about that? Anyways, through cleanliness, verses 37 through 51, and six woes, verses 46 through 54. Let's go ahead and open up. We'll look at the first point, a lamp and a light. I'll read the context of it, verses 33 through 36. No one... When he has lit a lamp, puts it in a secret place or under a basket, but on a lampstand that those who come in may see the light. The lamp of the body is the eye. Therefore, when your eye is good, your whole body also is full of light. But when your eye is bad, your body also is full of darkness. Therefore, take heed that the light which is in you is not darkness, if then your whole body is full of light, having no part dark, the whole body will be full of light, as when the bright shining of the lamp gives you light. So I paused on that personally as I was reading that and the purpose of the lamp in verse 33. No one, when he has lit a lamp, puts it in a secret place or under a basket and I don't know if this is because uh, Dave, our keyboard player here, has had a couple of Jehovah's Witnesses come over to his house, and he's been dealing with Jehovah's Witness, which I did many years ago when they came by my house, and I was able to trick them into spending two hours with me. Um, I made an appointment, told him I was too busy that day, made him come back, made him guarantee that they wouldn't suddenly have to leave. So I trapped them there for a couple of hours. And uh, anyways, before they came back, while we, I was actually painting the house, I didn't have time to really deal with it, 
He kept talking about uh, 1914 or 1918, kept talking about that date. And I, get, I finally said, what is it about 1914? He says, well, that's when the Lord returned in the secret place, in the secret place. So they believe that Jesus had already returned. And he is in the secret place. But here, this is a good argument for that. No one, when he has lit a lamp, puts it in a secret place. Jesus said, when I come back again, every eye will see it. So the Jehovah's Witness, a cult that do, do not truly follow the teachings of Christ, say that right now Jesus is ruling and reigning from a secret place. But that goes contrary to the very word of God. But today, we rarely use candles or oil lamps, except maybe when we have a power outage or we want to set a certain mood. We live in the age of electric lights. And uh, the principle, though, of what Jesus teaches is still applicable today. Light under a basket does no one any good or hidden in a secret place. It does no one any good. But when it's set on a table, when it's set on a lampstand, when it's hung from the ceiling, it illuminates the whole room in order that all can see. So Jesus used, he liked to use light as an illustration. We find it in the Gospels. In Matthew 5, 14 through 16, he used light to remind us that we are to be the light of the world. In Mark 4, 21 through 22, and Luke 8, 16 and 17, Jesus used light to remind us that all things, even the secret things, will come into the light of God's judgment. And thus, the purpose of the lamp is to help others to see truth. I love this psalm, Psalm 119, 105. Your word is a lamp to my feet, a light unto my path. So the purpose of light, the purpose of the very word of God, the light of God's word being a lamp to our feet, a light to our path. So Jesus talked about in verses 34 through and 35, the light that is in you, the lamp of the body, he says, is the eye. So how we receive things into our body, receive information, comes through our eyes, through reading, through visual, today through social media, through media, also our ears, we understand that. Therefore, when your eye is good, your whole body is full of light. But when your eye is bad, your body is also full of darkness. Therefore, take heed that the light which is in you is not darkness. If then your whole body is full of light, having no part dark, the whole body is full of light as when the bright shining of a lamp gives you light. So Jesus further teaches about the lamp of the body being that of the eye, how we consume information. We can say, both our eyes and our ears is pretty much uh, the main method of consuming information. I mean, we can use other senses, but pretty much of a majority of information that comes in, we receive it through our hearing. We, we th receive it through sight. It reminds me of that uh, nursery rhyme that I learned as a child. Oh, be careful, little eyes, what you see. Oh, be careful, little eyes, what you see. There's a father up above, and he's looking down in love. So be careful, little eyes, what you see. Oh, be careful, little ears, what you hear. 
Oh, be careful, little ears, what you hear. There's a father up above and he's looking down in love. So be careful, little ears, what you hear. And through our eyes and our ears, we give access to our mind, but also to our spirit, to our soul. And if we allow our eyes and ears to see and hear things that do not edify, darkness will begin to have place in our hearts. On the other hand, if we allow our eyes, our ears to receive from God's good word, from the good things of this life, the light that we already have will increase within our lives. Isaiah 44:18 says, They do not know nor understand, for he has shut their eyes so that they cannot see, and their hearts so that they cannot understand. The religious rulers, many of the religious rulers at that time in Jesus' day, as well as some of the common people, they were, as we said earlier, seeking a sign from Jesus. They were basically saying to Jesus, prove to us that you are indeed the Messiah. Yet Jesus had already given them many signs. In Luke 7, verse 22, Jesus told John the Baptist, who sent two of his disciples, John the Baptist being in prison at this time. We looked at this a few weeks ago. He sent two of his disciples to ask Jesus, are you the coming one or should we look for another? So even while John was in prison, he began to wonder, did I get it right? This man was filled with the Holy Spirit from his mother's womb. And he had questions regarding Jesus. It really helps me a lot when I struggle in my own walk with Christ when I have struggles that even some of the great heroes of our faith had similar struggles. He sent two of his disciples to Jesus asking, are you the coming one or should we look to another? And Jesus, he immediately didn't answer. He began to do miracles. And then at some point he turned to John's disciples. Luke 2:22 says, go tell John the things that you have seen and heard that the blind see, the lame walk, the lepers are cleansed, the deaf hear, the dead are raised, the poor have the gospel preached to them. Contextually, we might say that Jesus' light was continually shining before them, but they refused to receive the testimony of his light because the light in them was full of darkness. Second Corinthians 4.4 4, whose minds the God of this age has blinded, who do not believe, lest the light of the gospel of the glory of Christ, who is the image of God, should shine upon them. The issue is that they have allowed bad light to come in, so much so that the God of this age, Satan, has blinded them so that they cannot see the truth. We know that light expels darkness. That's what light does. You go into a, a dark room, at night, unless you're really good at maneuvering through the dark, you want to find a light to help guide you. How many times have people been a very appreciative of cell phones with lights on them now? I use it all the time that I can, you know, I don't want to turn on the main light. Um, I am the manual adjustment to our heat in our home. I have one that is programmable, but 
It seems like our hours are never programmable as it is, and I know that you can get uh, stuff that uh, just watches you in your house, and I don't want to have that in my house. One day they may force me to have it, but right now I just want to have the independence, and I don't mind. I can turn it up. I can turn it down. I can lock it in. I can lock it off. I can do those things. But a lot of times in the evening when I turn it down because I hate to sweat when I sleep, um, I'll use my phone. I'll just light it up because I can't see that well anymore. So I need the light to help me. So what kind of light do you have coming in? Light expels darkness. But what kind of light are you allowing to come into your life? Is it light that edifies or is it light that actually clouds or darkens the truth in this world? We need the light of God in our lives. Light and darkness, good and evil, they are daily set before us. Therefore, we must choose to allow that which we allow to enter into our hearts. In John 8, 12, it says, Jesus spoke to them again, saying, I am the light of the world, and he who follows after me shall not walk in darkness, but shall have the light of life. And we are not only to allow Jesus to light our path, but we're also to be lights to others. John 5:14 and also verse 16 tells us, You are the light of the world. A city that is set on a hill cannot be hidden. Let your light so shine before men that they may see your good works and glorify your Father in heaven. And we are to illuminate our lives with the good news of the gospel, the good things of this world, that we might be filled with the light of Jesus Christ to help bring his light into this dark world. Are you filling your lives with the light of Jesus Christ? What are you filling up with? Well, in verses 37 through 41, we look at true cleanliness. And again, it's short. I'll read the context for us. 37 through 41. And he spoke, a certain Pharisee, as he spoke, a certain Pharisee asked him to dine with him. So Jesus went in and sat down to eat. When the Pharisee saw it, he marveled, that he had not first washed before dinner. But the Lord said to him, Now you Pharisees make the outside of the cup and dish clean, but your inward parts is full of greed and wickedness. Verse 40, Foolish ones, did not he who made the outside make the inside also? Verse 41, But rather give alms of such things that you have, then indeed all things are clean to you. So true cleanliness. So it sets it up with a certain Pharisee. We don't know who the Pharisee was, but he invited Jesus over for dinner. So Jesus, no doubt his disciples came with him. And uh, it could have been that they washed before supper, but what they didn't do was wash in the traditional way. Now, we do learn that they had this custom from Mark 7, 3, for Pharisees and all Jews do not eat unless they wash their hands in a special way, holding the traditions of the elders. So it's not that Jesus most likely did not wash before dinner. Did you wash your hands? That probably wasn't it. My mom would ask me that question often. 
And I ask my grandsons that question often. Did you wash up? It's just that they did not wash in the traditional manner. It was almost when you read traditionally, and that's not in the Bible anyway, anywhere. All we have is Mark 7, 3 that tells us that they had a special way to wash their hands. So the tradition was similar to how a doctor might wash up before surgery under running water with the hands up and the water dripping off the elbows, um, which is not bad, not a bad way to wash. It's just probably not the way Jesus washed. I kind of get it in my mind because I worked trades for over 25 years. I was in construction. And uh, for us, on the job site, any water would do. And it would be usually a water bucket for masons. Uh, You had to keep the water fresh all the time. The laborer's job was to make sure we had material and mortar and that the mortar wasn't setting up too quickly and so they would constantly be adding water and then sticking their shovel back in that bucket but for us it was a water barrel a water bucket i mean if there was a spigot sure we would use a water hose Uh, that wasn't always available so for us it was kind of any water would do and i i kind of imagine that with jesus at least six of his disciples being fishermen i kind of envisioned that Whatever water was available, if they were washing out of a washing bowl, a bucket, a stream, or a lake, for them possibly any water would do. Jesus, though, responds by showing them their hypocrisy by allowing man-made traditions to supersede the commandments of God. In verses 39 and 40, Jesus said, Now you Pharisees make the outside of the cup, the dish, clean. And now he's talking about how their appearance was toward others. They looked good toward others. But Jesus said, your inward part is full of greed and wickedness. Foolish ones, did not he who made the outside also make the inside? So Jesus basically saying, don't just worry about the outside, your outside appearance toward others. Worry about what's in your heart Jesus dealt with the scribes and the Pharisees' inward hypocrisies versus their outward appearances. Their religious activities were merely just that, outward mask that brought no true change in their hearts. In contrast, it's like washing the outside of a cup and not even worried about the food particles that's trapped on the inside. And, you know, I don't know if it's because of Jesus or my mom, but when I do Jesus, or I do j- dishes to this day, I always tackle the inside first of whatever the dish is. But we know that that's true, right? That's where whatever food product might remain in there. You wash that, but you also want to make sure you check the outside too. As I, you know, my daughter Melissa used to now... She knows that when we were growing up, I had great eyesight up till I was about 39 years old and everything started going downhill then. But man, I had good vision. I still have decent, uh, I can see things far away pretty well, but things up close, I've even learned that washing with my, even my glasses on isn't sufficient. I want to make sure it feels clean too. I got to use my hands and make sure that I'm using another sense to make sure it feels clean as well. But Jesus was saying, 
That's how it needs to be spiritually in your life. You need to do a washing from the inside out. If you'd wash from the inside out, that daily washing that we need. Now, we are saved through faith in Jesus Christ, but as believers in Jesus Christ, we also need that daily cleansing because we work, we walk in this world. Our eyes, our ears hear things, see things. Our mouth may say things. Our hands, our feet may do things that we wish that we would not do. So we need that daily washing of the Word of God. Here's three verses of Scripture that I love that talks about daily cleansing through the Word of God. Psalm 119.9, How can a young man cleanse his way? By taking heed according to your word. How can a young man, but let's say a young woman, a medium-aged man or woman, an older man or woman, a young child, it's all true. By taking heed according to the word of God. Ephesians 5.26, that he might sanctify and cleanse her, talking about the church, with the washing of the water by the word. So how are we cleansed in the church? Through the word of God. How are we washed by the word? Through studying, through reading, through devotional study. It's so important. 1 John 3.3, everyone who has this hope in him purifies himself just as he is pure. And so this hope in Jesus Christ purifies us. And it's my hope that we've not only received the salvation of Jesus Christ, but that we are daily, that we are continually being washed by the water of his word. For in verse 41, this seems a little out of place where he goes right to charities, really the giving of alms but rather give alms such things as you have, then indeed all things are clean to you. So Jesus viewed through true cleanliness or godliness through one's charities toward others. At least that's how I translate that. It's kind of like if you're walking in faith in Jesus Christ, you're allowing his word to penetrate your heart and your life, then it will be displayed by the things that you do and how you help others. In Hebrews 13:16, but do not forget to do good and to share for with such sacrifices God is well pleased. Or James 1:27, pure and undefiled Religion before God and the Father is this, to visit orphans and widows in their trouble, to keep oneself unspotted from the world. So there's a cleanliness, a purity that comes through serving others, but this is not a works for salvation. It's actually, we do good works because of the work that Christ has already done in our hearts. It's talking about having a proper relationship with God through faith in Jesus Christ. And as we do that, then it will have an impact in our lives. It will affect the way we conduct ourselves in this life. So have you allowed, the first step is to allow Christ to cleanse your heart from all sin through faith in Jesus Christ. Have you allowed that to happen? Now we close out looking at six woes. And here, because it's the longest section, I'm not going to read the context. We'll just clip off one woe at a time. And we know that there's six because the Lord Jesus says woe six times. 
So it's pretty easy. And I have them all underlined. Woe, number one. And so the first woe is found in verse 42. So woe, first of all, speaks about condemnation that can include grief, pain, or displeasure. So the woe speaks about a condemnation that can include grief, pain, or displeasure. Woe, number one. Verse 42, but woe to you Pharisees, for you tithe mint and rue and all manner of herbs and pass by justice and the love of God. These you ought to have done without leaving the others undone. So there's the title of this teaching today, justice and love, more specifically the love of God. But here we get it in the context of what Jesus is bringing accusation against the religious rulers, the Pharisees specifically. He'll talk to the scribes, he'll talk to lawyers, he'll introduce them in these six woes as well. But right now he's targeting the Pharisees and they get it by the end of this passage. They'll say, hey, wait a minute, you're talking about us. And the Lord is like, yeah, you're right. So they were so strict in their outward tithing that they would, Lily and I made some chili this morning for lunch here at the church, and uh, we were using our spices. Never in my life have I ever seen anybody bring 10% of their spice that they bring into their house here at church. Man, we'd have a rack full of spices down there. We'd have to give it away. Um, We don't use spices around here that quickly, but they did. Their mint, their rue, all manner of herbs, and they would portion it out and a 10% would go to the temple. Look at me, you know? I don't even know how you divide up spices that detailed, but look at me, look at what I've done. Even I am so strict with tithing, even my mint, my rue, my herbs. But Jesus said, you're passing by justice and love, the love of God. Now, here's the interesting thing. Jesus said, these you ought to have done. Jesus isn't condemning them for tithing. It's like, you should have done that. That's a given. That's a natural. But you should also not leave the other things undone. What's the other things? Well, it's justice and the love of God. These, they had passed. So the outward appearance, man, even down to the spices that they had in their spice cabinet. But the inward appearance, they had passed by. They were guilty of not giving out justice, of not giving out the love of God to others. And we are to walk in justice. This speaks about the practice of doing what is right in this world, in our humanity. We are to have justice toward others in relationships with others and also speaks about our relationship with God. In Psalm 82, 3 and 4, we are to defend the poor, the fatherless, to do justice and to do justice to the afflicted and needy. Deliver the poor and the needy. Free them from the hand of the wicked. And so we're to look out for others. We are to defend the poor, defend the fatherless. We're to do justice. We have in our world today an election coming up, and so 
I hate to say these things because it's horrible for later radio recordings that this message will eventually make it out on the air. But I'm going to timestamp this right now, talking about the election coming up. And we have seen a lot of injustice. And the reason I'm talking about this is because I've seen in our nation in the last couple of years a lot of injustice toward our children. And when we stand up against that, you're being mocked for that. In fact, one of the daytime talk show hosts, who it just surprises me that these shows even continue, that they have any kind of audience, but specifically talking about white mama bears, white mothers who are went from voting Democratic ticket to Republican ticket, and this gal said it's like roaches uh, voting for the roach motel that's going to kill them. And so she depicted people wanting to fight for their children, that harm would not come to them, is that they're actually voting to destroy their own lives. And they just got it. They're so blind. They're worried about that outside of the cup and not the inward things of the heart. We are to defend the poor, the fatherless. Let me put in there the children. We're to do justice. We're to deliver the poor. We're to free them from the hand of the wicked. And right now, politically in our nation, the hand of the wicked, wicked is upon our children. And we need to deliver them. To walk in the love of God means to take the love that we have received from Jesus Christ, be willing to share it to others, but also through acts of charity, sharing our faith with others. In Matthew 6, verses 3 and 4, when you do a charitable deed, Jesus said, do not let your left, do not let your left hand know what your right hand is doing, that a charitable, charitable deed may be done in secret, for your father who sees in secret will himself reward you openly. So we're not to, as the Pharisees had accustomed to in Jesus' day, but it's not just Pharisees. It's people today who make a big deal about the gifts that they give, maybe in politics, uh, maybe in Hollywood, uh, maybe in public life, or maybe it's just friends and family. The Lord tells us in his church, we're to give in stealth. We're to help. And sometimes when helping others, you can't help but for others to know that you're doing good works. I mean, it's just a given. If you're actively engaged, personally engaged, doing good things in our community, helping those with need, then people will know that. But we're not to brag about it. We're just to know that our Father in heaven sees and that he will reward us, whether here on this earth or one day in heaven. So that first woe, we are not to leave justice and the love of God undone. The second woe, again against the Pharisees, woe to you Pharisees, verse 43, for you love the best seats in the synagogues and greetings in the marketplaces. So their position had become costumes through which they deceived the people, but not Jesus. Moreover, we are we're to take a lower path, a path that leads to true honor before God and others. The Word of God tells us in Proverbs 16, 18, that pride goes before destruction, a haughty spirit before the fall. 
Jesus will address this subject again in Luke 14, where invited guests are jockeying for position by choosing the best seats to kind of show their importance. I want to sit in the front. Well, we know that that doesn't happen in churches, right? In the church life, the best seats apparently are in the back. I'm not looking. I'm just saying. But how about this? When I grew up in church, and even here at our church, and I kind of killed this when I became the pastor here uh, over 23 years ago. But prior to that, we did it here, and there's nothing wrong with it, but and the pastor and the song director, assistant pastor, perhaps would sit up on the stage. That's how it used to be right here. Calvary Chapel, Costa Mesa, Pastor Chuck, uh, whatever pastor, whoever the pastor was doing announcements that day would sit on the stage near him. And uh, we could look, view that as the best seat. I want to get up on the stage. Now, I killed this not because sitting on the stage. I'm going to be on the stage. I already know that. So it's no big deal for me. When I'm not doing worship on the worship team, which is hardly ever, I'd prefer to sit next to my wife, Lily, than to sit on the stage without her. So I killed it because I just sit, prefer to sit with Lily. And so we kind of killed that here. But let's just think about that. In church life, oftentimes, it is those stage seats that for some people, they want to get on the stage. They want to be in front of people. And that can be a danger. The Word of God tells us in Luke 14, 11, whoever exalts himself will be humbled. He who humbles himself will be exalted. So we are to take the humble road. We're to allow Jesus to exalt us rather than attempting to exalt ourselves. Peter picked up on this in 1 Peter 5, 5. He said, yes, all of you be submissive to one another. Be clothed with humility for God resists the proud and gives grace to the humble. So take the humble road. But for the Pharisees, they liked the prestige that they had in the synagogues. They liked the best seats in the marketplace. They loved the greetings that they would get. The third woe, verse 44, woe to you, scribes and Pharisees. So now he adds scribes into the mix. The scribes were basically those who uh, transcribed the word of God or the law. But they were also teachers in Israel as well. The Pharisees was a sect within Israel. And, and we get the Pharisees, we view them in the New Testament as evil. And I try to, in my notes, I often say most of, many of. They were actually... And the first Pharisee that we know recorded in Scripture was Ezra. He was a priest. Um, about 400 years earlier, they would have been viewed the back-to-the-Bible guys. They would have been much like the Calvary Chapel movement in the early days. We just want to know the Word of God and to know the God of the Word. But after 400 years, they kind of forgot their Bible and only made it an outward show. So here are the scribes and Pharisees. Woe to you, hypocrites, for you are like graves which are not seen, 
and the men who walk over them are not aware of them. So the Greek word for hypocrite means to act under assumed name. In theater, back in Jesus' day, the Greeks would use masks that had actually mechanical devices that would help to project their voices, but also they could change character by just putting a mask on. And so that, that's kind of the roots of the word, putting a mask on. So to act under an assumed name. And Jesus said of the scribes and Pharisees that they had become like these unmarked graves with people walking over the graves, being totally unaware of them. Now in Jewish life, this is a big deal. If you were going to Passover, let's say to Jerusalem for the Passover celebration, prior to that, the Israelis would go out throughout all of Israel and they would wash white the tombs to make sure that no one accidentally came through a graveyard on their way down to Jerusalem. Because if they did, it would defile them from being able to worship. Numbers 19.11, he who touches the dead body of anyone shall be unclean for seven days. So it wasn't sin, but it made them ceremonially unclean for a period of seven days. They were to be separated, uh, could not go to temple to worship until they went through the cleansing process. So it wasn't sin, but many of Israeli's rulers were so far from God's truth that they were actually defiling others around them. That's why he equated them to unmarked graves. They had become blind leaders of the blind. In Matthew 15, 14, the Lord would condemn the Pharisees there again, saying, let them alone. They are blind leaders of the blind. And if the blind leads the blind, both will fall into the ditch. So the fourth woe, verses 45 and 46. Then one of the lawyers answered and said to him, Teacher, by saying these things, you reproach us also. So here they're saying, wait a minute. Are you actually talking about us? They were getting it. And so Jesus said, verse 46, woe to you also. So it might have been better for this lawyer to keep his mouth shut. He had to defend his scribe and Pharisee brothers. He might have been a Pharisee, but a lawyer within the troop there. But so Jesus said, hey, if you want to speak up, woe to you also, lawyers, for you load men with burdens hard to bear, and you yourselves do not touch the burdens with one of your fingers. So in a biblical sense, a lawyer was one who studied the oral and written law of the Jews. And this lawyer realized that Jesus was speaking against them, so he maybe spoke up in defense and ended up getting condemned right along with them. Might be best when we stand before the Lord to keep our mouth shut, let him say what he needs to say, don't try to justify, yeah, but be quiet. So in our text, Jesus accused them of finding willing disciples upon whom they would heap the traditions and laws of men 
but burdens which Jesus said no one is able to bear, and then they won't even lift a finger to help. In Romans 2, 21 through 24, you therefore who teach another and do not teach yourself, you who preach that a man should not steal, do you steal? You who say do not commit adultery, do you commit adultery? You who abhor idols, do you rob temples? You who make your boast in the law, do you dishonor God through breaking the law? For the name of God is blasphemed among the Gentiles because of you, as it is written. People could see what they were doing. And those of faith are not to heap burdens upon others, but they are to be burden bearers of others. We're not to make things harder for others. We're to speak truth, but we're to help them be burden bearers of others. Galatians 6.2, bear one another's burdens, so fulfill the law of Christ. By bearing others' burdens, we fulfill the law of Christ. The fifth woe, only two more to go. And this is the largest contextually, verses 47 through 51. Woe to you, for you build the tombs of the prophets, and your fathers killed them. In fact, you bear witness that you approve the deeds of your fathers, for they indeed killed them, and you build their tombs. Therefore, the wisdom of God also said, I will send them prophets and apostles, and some of them they will kill and persecute, that the blood of all the prophets, which was shed from the foundation of the world, may be required at this generation, from the blood of Abel to the blood of Zechariah, who perished between the altar and the temple. Yes, I say to you, it shall be required of this generation. So Jesus shows, again, the hypocrisy of the scribes, the Pharisees, the lawyers, who had built the tombs, these shrines, to honor the prophets of times past, the prophets that their own forefathers had put to death. Jesus said, by building their tombs, it was actually proof that they approved of the forefathers who were actually murderers of the prophets. He'd say it again in Matthew 23, 31 through 36, and this is there in the final week of Christ, he would say, Matthew 23, 31 through 36, Therefore you are witness against yourselves that you are sons of those who murdered the prophets. Fill up then the measure of your father's guilt. Serpents, he's calling them serpents, serpents, brood of vipers. How can you escape the condemnation of hell? Therefore, indeed, I send you prophets, wise men, scribes. Some of them you will kill and crucify. Some of them you will scourge in your synagogues, persecute them from city to city, that you may that on you may come all the righteous blood shed on the earth from the blood of righteous Abel and the blood of Zechariah, the son of Berechiah, who was murdered between the temple and the altar. Surely I say to you, all these things will come upon this generation. So it seems to me, it appears to me that in our passage from Luke 11, here in the fifth woe, verses 47 through 51, Jesus is looking back, talking about all the prophets, apostles that have been persecuted. But here in Matthew 23, in his final week, he looks forward to 
the apostles, the prophets, the believers during the church age that they would persecute and kill and go from city to city as the apostle Paul would do before he became a believer. Persecution that would come against the Lord's church itself. But he both in these, both of these he ties back to Abel, who was killed by his brother Cain. Where in Genesis 4.11, God said to Cain, the voice of your brother's blood cries out to me from the ground. And apparently Abel's blood continues to cry forth for justice even until the time of Christ. According to Hebrews, it continues to cry out. In Hebrews 11.4, it says, By faith, Abel offered to God a more excellent sacrifice than Cain, through which he obtained the witness that he was righteous. God testifying about his gift, and through it, he being dead still speaks. So the first person who was murdered on this earth, according to the word of God, was murdered by his own brother. As Cain killed Abel, God said, I can hear his blood crying out to me from the earth. And God said in Hebrews 11:4, it is still speaking. So the blood of Jesus still speaks that better than Abel. According to Hebrews 12:24, to Jesus, the mediator of our new covenant, and to the sprinkling of the blood that speaks better things than that of Abel. Yes, Abel's blood was shed. Yes, that was a horrible thing. Yes, it still speaks, still cries out for justice. But the blood of Jesus Christ is better than Abel's because, because Jesus Christ, through the shedding of his blood, has become the mediator between God and man. Now, Zechariah the priest was killed crying out against the people for forsaking God to serve idols. We learn about this in 2 Chronicles 24, 20 through 22. The horrific thing about this is that Joash was a Jewish king who began good and went bad. He began good because he was a young man when he became king. And as long as the high priest was living Joash did good things, but after the high priest died, ultimately Joash, it tells us in 2 Chronicles 24, 22, Joash the king did not remember the kindness of Jehoiada, his father, had done to him, but killed his son as he died and said, the Lord look upon it and repay. So Zacharias was the son of, of the priest that took the king under his wing and helped him to be a good, godly king. And how did he repay the goodness that this priest showed him? By killing the priest's son. That's pretty bad. And yet Jesus said of the generation of his day that the atrocity that they would commit would be worse than that of their forefathers that of the persecution and the murder of the prophets of God by killing them. Their atrocity would be worse because they would kill God's only begotten son. Even though Jesus was rejected by the people, by the world, by the leaders of Israel of that day, his rejection, though, ultimately led to our salvation. 
And from Abel until this day, God has never forgotten the shed blood of his saints. So the final woe, number six, 42, or 52 through 54, but the woe is only in one verse, verse 52. Woe to you lawyers, for you have taken away the key of knowledge, and you did not enter it yourself, and those who were entering in you hindered. So the scribes, the Pharisees, the lawyers, though they may have preached the truth of God's word, they did not truly know the God they preached. And worse yet, they were preventing others who desired to come to faith. They were hindering them from entering into the salvation of God. First Thessalonians 2, 14 through 16, For you, brethren, became imitators of the church of God, which are in Judea in Christ Jesus. For you also suffered the same things from your own countrymen, just as they did from the Judeans, who killed both the Lord Jesus Christ and their prophets and have persecuted us. And they do not please God and are contrary to all men, forbidding us to speak to the Gentiles that they may be saved so as always to fill up the measure of their sins, but wrath has come upon them to the uttermost. Forbidding the preaching of the gospel of Jesus Christ that others might be saved. We live in a world today that is desiring to forbid the preaching of Jesus Christ. We live in a world just a few years ago that they said that it was okay for strip clubs and hardware stores to remain open, but the churches need to remain locked down during COVID because apparently marijuana clinics, alcohol stores, strip bars are more important to people than the very word of God that can bring salvation to Jesus Christ. We did not remained locked down. And I tell you, I prepared and we only got a couple of phone calls from the health department, which I dealt with, and that's all we got. But I prepared that if they were going to come, I had things printed up that we were going to have a discussion about the right that we have to worship here in the United States. May we never be guilty of hindering others from coming to faith in Jesus Christ. So as Jesus said these things, just wrapping up the chapter, verses 53 and 54, as we close out, he said these things to them, the scribes, the Pharisees, began to assail him and to cross-examine him about many things, lying in wait for him, seeking to catch him in something he might say that they may be accused. So the last two verses, just wrapping it up a little bit, the religious rulers here began to come against Jesus. We're coming to the end of the Lord's year of popularity, and the religious rulers now begin to intensify, intensify their attack, their hostility against Christ. They're looking for things that they might trap him by. Ultimately, they want to see him dead and yet death would not defeat him as they supposed. But actually death would open the way of salvation who, to all who look upon Jesus Christ in life-saving faith. 
May we never be guilty of hindering others from coming to Jesus Christ. So we've seen today love and justice from Luke 11, 33 through 54. We looked at in verses 33 through 36, a light and a lamp. And I asked the question, have you allowed Jesus to cleanse your heart? That's where it begins. True cleanliness in verses 37 through 41. Have you allowed Jesus to cleanse your heart? Well, I said that twice. That's wrong. Let me see. I'll look at these, my notes, the same notes you guys have. Better. The first one should have been, are you being filled with the light of Jesus Christ? a light and a lamp. The second one was correct. Have you allowed Jesus to cleanse your heart? Cut and paste can get you in trouble sometimes. And our third point, the six woes. May we never be guilty of hindering someone from coming to Jesus Christ. Let's go ahead and stand and worship together as we close out in one last song. Father, we pray that you would be with us now as we wait upon you. Lord, if there's a prayer need within this body, I pray, Lord, that they would deal with these things now, that they would come forward and kneel down at the prayer benches, that they'd come forward and have Pastor Kevin pray alongside with them for the need that they might have, whatever that need might be. Lord, if someone's listening through radio, if they're listening or watching online through video, or at a later date, Lord, I pray, Lord, that they would just cry out to you right now, Lord. You hear us wherever we're at. So this hour, Lord, we pray that you would hear our cry as we close out this time of worship. In the name of Jesus, amen.